Welcome to the Drop Zone Podcast, brought to you by the Penalty Drop Golf Blog. Chase the intro. As Bubba Watson would say, you're welcome. Hi. So, who are the penalty drop? And what are we about? So, the Drop Zone podcast will be an episodic weekly podcast that we'll bring as part of the penalty drop team and golf blog. And just a bit of a background of us. So, I'm a very keen, avid golfer and have been for a long time. I was once a half-decent, low-single-finger handicapper who had aspirations to become a club pro um, way back in the day. Um, But financially, I couldn't make it pay um, and moved into the world of of business um, and been involved in business for 25 years, um, making a good career for myself. And through my travels of business and my interest in golf, um, a good few years ago, I got some really good golfing business acquaintances who were rooted in the golf media industry. And we had an idea to, at some point in time, kind of, kind of collaborate and help each other to create a, just to express our interest in golf. But those guys, uh, have got obviously much more of a journalistic background than myself. And I come more from a commercial, aspect and I enjoy that aspect of golf um, and the business side of that with regards to sponsors and finances and how tours run themselves and all those types of things so it seemed like a pretty good natural fit and then COVID happened um, and then, so we, we put a delay on the project um, for obvious reasons so people just making sure they spend time and look after their own needs um, and we started to kind of kick it back off again um, about 18 months ago two years ago and we've slowly built up to where we are in a position to kind of run and test what we're doing and share some thoughts and you know, get vocal on, on Twitter. Um, but we did start to write some articles, and some of them have been pretty good, um, I think, in terms of our what we've produced. And this is about growing that and getting more eyes eyeballs onto you know, what we produce as content. Um, we do have a team of a couple of writers as well. So we have a UK-based writer who writes our tournament coverage, Ross, um, for the DP World Tour in, in America, um, Kevin, who does our PGA Tour tournament coverage. Um, so we've been working around some of that a little bit. We've had a, a few weeks off just for various um, personal reasons. But here we are after everything that's happened in the last kind of 18 months, and we've got to get stuck into that. And we're not affiliated with any tour. We're not affiliated with any media outlet. We're a self-funded project. And we will keep it that way. Um, And if we manage to grow enough to make it pay for itself, then brilliant. If not, it doesn't matter. We'll still bring you independent views um, around information that we know and we're aware of and using our expertise in the various areas that we have got that expertise to hopefully bring you some useful, informative content. And over the course of time, we will look to get some good interviews lined up. Um, 
both from the tournament side of golf, but also the business side of golf. And we'd look to expand on some of that further. So that's us as the penalty drop. Um, and this is the episode one of our podcast, The Drop Zone. And hopefully we can take you on a good journey over the coming weeks, months and years. Um, and hopefully you keep coming back to listen. So hello, everyone. Okay, let's take you on a little journey through the Willy Wonka PGA Tour, European Tour Strategic Alliance Factory. Um, it is a magical mystery tour. Now, some people think this only all happened in the last kind of three or four years. Um, that's not the case. This story goes back to 2010, and it may even go back further than that. Now, there were... Lots of rumblings and rumours at the time, in back in 2010, that the PGA Tour were looking to buy out and purchase the European Tour. And their main purpose and goal was to buy the Ryder Cup and to own a piece of the Ryder Cup. Because that is a big cash cow. The Ryder Cup, the media rights, would offer huge value as part of the media contracts that the PGA has with their TV obligations. Um, that generates huge amounts of income for them. Now, Tim Fincham, who was this commissioner at the time of the PGA Tour, was challenged on this, and it all, all culminated in, the, in a challenge, and he was questioned in Akron, Ohio, in 2013. He denied that was the case, um, but obviously that was the case and you know we had through obviously my colleagues um we know that that was actually happening now during that time or as that happened the the idea of the premier golf league which was investment banking driven via the ring group and various other investment partners and also the public investment fund was started off as a seed of an idea and that kind of commenced at that particular time. To coincide with that, in 2014-2015, there was a change in the board and the CEO position on the European tour. And this is where Keith Pelly came in to the picture. Now, unfortunately for the European tour, that was a bad appointment. Um, and since that particular time, the European tour has failed its members. Um, the product has become less attractive. Um, they struggled less attractive, not only to fans and to viewers and to media, despite the fact that Sky Sports in the UK and, and around Europe have done a, a sterling job in trying to really enhance the product. Um, but they also failed, failed the players. And that's where this story kind of really commences and the appointment of Keith Pelly. And why is that? Well, you have to look at the structure of what happened in the years leading up to this. And this also comes into where the Saudi involvement and the PIF money is actually really important. Through the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, the European tour was a very attractive place to, pay, to, to play golf. Um, they had immense players who would also go and 
play in America, like Sasevi and Faldo and Langer, but they would predominantly come back and play in, in Europe. And that had a really strong effect on the Ryder Cup and obviously the passion that they had as, as, as a European, as a continent, but also players playing for the, the pride of their tour. Um, and that really excelled and obviously the Ryder Cup exploded and that meant there was a lot of coverage for European golf. And that kind of extended then when the United Arab Emirates and all of their wealth and money invested in to the European tour. Um, they had a vision to make Dubai a tourist, tourist hotspot. They had very questionable human rights records at the time, and they still do to a certain degree now. Um, but they had a vision for their nation. Um, and, and Dubai um, was obviously a key part of that. So they went and they built some world-class golf courses because they had the financial backing to do that. And they came in to partner and to heavily invest and have partnerships with the European tour because they saw the value of golf as a tour tourist element to bring people and to bring business to Dubai. Now, if you fast forward now to, the, to today, Dubai is one of the biggest tourist hotspots, one of the biggest golfing destinations. It's it's and a, and a, and a huge, huge port for commercial traveling and business. Um, and golf was central to that. So the European tour flourished after that and the, the tournaments and the money that was there and you know the likes of Rory and, and Tiger playing in Dubai and Rory being very closely affiliated with uh, Jumeirah Golf Resort and Dubai uh, as a nation um, and other players as well. Um, you know, Colin Montgomery had great records there. Thomas Bjorn had some really good battles with Tiger. Um, and the European tour flourished during that period and continued to grow and, and attract great players globally. Ernie Els, Matif Goosen. Yeah, it's, but what happened in the, in those 2000s, the, the progress of that started to wane ever so slightly. The Ryder Cup team was still beating the Americans. You know, we had an amazing track record in the Ryder Cup. But then when you get to the late 2000s and then into the 2010 period, the product starts to wane. There's no innovation. There's no change into making, to keep expanding on the DP World Tour. They, they kind of rested on their laurels. They thought they had, oh, we've got a great product. We've got some great new players coming through. Um, we've got a great schedule. We're playing great golf courses. And they made some poor decisions in that base. And I think that's at the point where the PGA Tour saw that and tried to obviously make a purchase on a buyout way back when. Now, coinciding with that, the PGA Tour was also growing because obviously the, the huge impact of Tiger Woods. You know, 15 years in, in 2000, Tiger, in 2001, 2002, Tiger plays most the most unbelievable golf that probably anyone's ever seen since Jack Nicklaus was in his prime. Um, and the PGA Tour strength and value goes up and then the big media contracts come in. So they've got extra money. They put up their prizes. You know, they, they started, they, obviously, in years to come, the FedEx comes in, the championship playoffs, um, the Tour Championship. So there's a real good structure to the PGA Tour. So the best European Tour players 
are going to go where the money is. They can play against better players. You know, the WGC events that were there as well, all very, very attractive. Now, that's where, again, the European Tour let their membership down because they didn't react to that. They didn't change the membership structure. They didn't say, well, hang on, you know, you've got to play six events to maintain your European Tour card if you're going to go and play the PGA Tour. Um, so there was a lot of failings in the management between 2010 to 2015 anyway. And then Keith Pelly coming in did not, we didn't re try to reverse that fact. There was still no innovation. Um, and then what, what the European Tour is, they, they made a decision to actually purchase because the product, the European Tour production arm was kind of fully owned by IMG and Transworld Sport or Transworld International. Then it was a 50-50 split. And then the rest of the purchase was, was made and the European Tour took ownership of European Tour Productions. That was extremely costly in a region of £400 million plus, plus. And they, were, they would be paying that license element and paying that debt off as a purchase right up until 2035, 2036. And some of this is actually in the PGA Tour documents, and it's well documented. But we went through when the Strength and Strategic Alliance was announced last June. That really piqued our interest, and we thought we'd go and do some investigation on this. But So we already knew all of this, and I wrote an article on this on the Penalty Drop website um, back at the back end of February, early March, to talk about that Strategic Alliance and the Strength of the Alliance. During that period, you know, we roll on a bit, and there's obviously the PG, the Premier Golf League, and the Rain Group, and the Saudi that is gathering speed. There's a lot more interest. There's more talk about that. And at some point in time, there was a difference of opinion between the two sides of the investment, so the, the PIF and the Rain Group and their investment consortium, and the PIF decides to go their own way and to start really looking at what a what concept could they come up with as part of that team element to actually make that work? Now, just prior to that, so not long after spending huge amounts of money um, and buying out the Transworld Sport and IMG of the production arm, COVID happens. And the European tour leading up to that particular point, because of the poor investment, because of the poor management and the poor operating model and how they work and no innovation around product, the European tour finances had already started to wane. On top of, obviously, then spending £400 million to buy the production arm back. Um, just a really poor, really, really poor decision-making. So I'm not quite sure what kind of diligence they had, what kind of assurance process they had in place. Um, just really bad decision-making. Obviously, they could not foresee what was going to happen with the pandemic, but that was kind of a real, was the start of a nail in the coffin. Because they were on a period of time for about eight years of losing money on a four-year cycle. Again, that's also covered and mentioned in the PGA Tour documents. And the one aspect that was keeping them just above, just above water was the Ryder Cup. So the Ryder Cup every four years when it's held in Europe is a big revenue generator, big media money generator. And obviously with the production arm, they thought that obviously they could increase that, um, increase the value of what they were making. 
then COVID happens and the DP World Tour really struggle financially. Um, revenue drops hugely. Um, the amount of prize money on offer is kind of reduced drastically as well. And leading just into that period, the PGA Tour saw an opportunity that they saw nine years previous with Tim Fincham to buy the DP World Tour. And again, that is in the PGA Tour documents. It explains around the process. They had a couple of plans. The first plan was to buy the DP World Tour outright, including the Ryder Cup, which is mostly owned by the European Tour. And there's a couple of other shareholders in that. I think the RNA is one. Um, and uh, there's another body as well. I think it might be actually it might be the production arm. So, kudos to the European Tour. Um, they turned. They obviously turned the buyout down in some way, shape, or form. When or how that happened, um, don't know. But it, it obviously was through discussions was turned down. Now, at the same time, the PIF in back in 2018, they kind of really want to invest invest in in, in European Tour golf, um, and they have meetings. And there's a there was a meeting in Saudi where Ernie Els is there, Keith Petty is there, Amajid Sharour, who was there, the initial um, kind of chairman um, or, or of Golf Saudi, um, who's obviously was quite prevalent in um, with regards to Live Golf last year, um, along with Yazir. And the Golf Saudi International is born. Obviously, COVID kind of has a little bit of an impact on that, but it does happen. So there's an interest from the PIF in terms of what we want to invest. And they obviously come up with this idea and they've done a lot of strategic planning. And there's a, there's as, as a group that consultants are involved, but also a personal advisor, a guy called Michael Klein, who I'll come on to later, very, very important individual. Um, Michael Klein is a personal advisor to the PIF. He's a personal advisor to Yazir, and he's a personal advisor to Mohammed bin Salman. And he's a city banker, and he was part of the city group, and he went his own way, created his own investment fund, um, and he's helped grow the PIF from 200 billion to 600 billion. So this guy is absolutely trusted by Yazir, MBS, and the PIF. So he's also involved, obviously, in in the live golf aspect in some way, shape or form. Um, and the premise of the idea. Now, during that period, obviously we know there were meetings in Malta, Paul McGinley stated this, where the, the, the Saudi PIF and their consultants go and present to the European tour. Whilst they're having these discussions in the background with the PJ about buying the tour and maybe alternate plans. And they present this idea to them around a team concept, team concept, live golf. Um, I think at the time they were going to call it the, the Saudi Golf League, but then also the, um, I think there was another name that they were going to use, but they, they took that name away because of the conflict with regards to the football league that was going to, the Super League that was going to take over from the Champions League. So, again, They've obviously had this presentation. They obviously weren't fully invested in this because they were more interested in what the PGA Tour had to offer. So you'd really have to question, did they pay enough attention during those meetings um, to 
really listen as to what the PIF wanted to do. From some of the outputs, which we've seen in some of the responses and some of the um, press releases, I don't think they probably did fully understand what was going on. Um, some of the comments that we've seen around what was happening in the rooms, it was all a bit, you know, quick, quick, they weren't really interested. It was all a bit, yeah, we're, we're not really interested, but we'll, we'll have a listen. Um, and again, I think that there is just pu is really poor management. How much assurance did they look? Did they really look at the numbers? Did they really look at the idea? And obviously they didn't. And then they, because obviously they're struggling for money. They need money. They need investment. I think there was some other element of that was in there. But the, the PIF said, well, no, we're not just going to give you money. We want to be able to invest and invest wisely and invest properly to create a proper product. And that's exactly what obviously they've turned out and they've, they've done with Live, and we'll talk about that a bit later as well. So there's been lots of poor decisions made by the European tour. Um, COVID, obviously, they can't do anything about, but if they had a solid grounding before that and had a really solid business, a way of working, an operating model, a, a product, innovation, they wouldn't have been in the position that they were in. And they had that for 10 years and they had that for four or five years under Keith Pelly and nothing had changed. Um, so they decide then in 2019-2020 to engage with the PGA Tour around an alternate plan or the, because they didn't want to be bought out and they come to an agreement in 2021 because they need the money because they're obviously they haven't got much there and COVID's kind of is pretty much put them on the deathbed. Um, PGA Tour loaned them some money to keep afloat. And they signed this strategic alliance. And that meant that the PGA Tour bought 15% of the European Tour productions, um, which is, again, it's a fairly big revenue generator. Um, but they also, the other key thing in this is that they gave Jay Monaghan a seat on the European Tour board. Now, that initial, initial relationship actually worked quite well. So because of that relationship and through commercial and engagements with the PGA Tour, they managed to get a sponsor, DP World, um, a again, with links to Dubai and the UAE, a logistics company, one of the largest logistics companies in the world, and they come and sponsor uh, as a headline sponsor for the European Tour. So it's now formerly known as the DP World Tour. And everything is kind of fairly rosy. But again, there's still this background rumbling of the Saudis having this idea of a product for Team Golf. And again, in the PGA Tour docs, everyone's kind of fully aware of this. And then we get to late no, we get to late 2021, and there's an even stronger rumours now that this is actually going to happen. Greg Norman is announced as a commissioner. Um, the PGA Tour still think it's not going to happen in the November. There's the famous Phil Mickelson interview, um, obviously saying, telling the Saudis to go f themselves um and they're scary you know motherfuckers um and but over the course of a couple of months there's some real traction there um they get phil mickerson and they get dj and that starts the ball rolling then there's obviously other players so the rumor starts happening in january february of 2022 rory mcelroy and the dead in the water comment, and you know you've got people backing off like Brooks Kepka, uh, Bruce Kepka, um, but it snowballs, and then they get a f they had enough. They felt as though they had enough players, 
they'd all and this is where the people were quite smart they'd already invested before that 200 million into the asian tour they created the international series which was going to be a feeder for the first year of live golf into into live golf so the international series and they had an event in london and i think the top 10 or 12 guys in there most of them qualified to play in, in the live london event and that's where that all started and that just obviously gradually grew now as a reaction to that we know what happened pga tour came up with strong statements very strong statements um, which obviously they've backtracked on terribly um and what they then did do as a knee-jerk reaction was to announce a strengthened alliance with the dp world tour so dp world tour we're going to give you we'll we'll clear your debt um because they had a couple of loans so we'll write off the debt um we'll pay you the money that we owe you for the 15 percent um that'll help with regards to paying out img um over the course of time and we'll invest another 200 million pound but you've got to give us 40 percent of the european tour productions now they announced that after live london and i think wherever lives next stop was in between that and that was in the back end of june now that was a pr exercise and a stunt to try and show some unity as two tours the pga tour were never interested in that the pga tour just wanted to have the Ryder cup you know and i think keith pelly again with when you see the pga tour docs just some of the emails the correspondence between them um the conflict of interest in that is absolutely crazy the whole antitrust thing is just unbelievable and i think the doj will have a field day on that even obviously i think there's um meetings next week just a real real bad state of affairs now one of the key things on that was the next step was obviously it's august in the tour championship jay monaghan comes out and starts to talk about designated events and up in prize money using some of the cash reserves which they've used for covid and they use some of the cash reserves to help kind of buy some of the or to, to, for the 15 percent purchase um for the european tour they gave him a bit of a loan um which the european tour were obviously paying back and that then it was that particular moment in time i knew that the strategic the strategic alliance the strength and the lines was absolutely dead in the water to, to quote rory mcelroy and because in the uk there's a process to go through whether you're a public company or a private company anybody who buys shares you have to notify what's called company's house and that notification never came through and that's what led me to go back and start the process of looking at this whole story and the financials around the strategic alliance um, and we, we spent several months going through that we were monitoring what was happening and we got to november 2022 still no strategic alliance when they did the annual return there was no update on shareholders when they then submitted their accounts we read through their accounts and for the the previous period there was a, a couple of lines buried in a very lengthy document that said we have a an agreement to, to begin negotiation but no deal has been done yet with the pga tour um as part of that status and we come to now and that still hasn't been signed um so we're 13 14 months later after that joint press release in the end of june in 2022 in reaction to live of a strengthened alliance and that deal's never been signed it's never going to be signed now so 
the, the strategic alliance was just a facade um and it leaves the dp Warsaw in a very 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 precarious position particularly now with regards to everything that the pga tour did basically Jay Monaghan basically stabbed Keith Pelly and the European Tour of Golf in the back when they announced the, de the designated events and the whole restructuring of the PGA Tour. Um, that was that was the end of the DP World Tour. Um, in four or five years' time, it just wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be around, and that's that's just a simple fact. Um, so there was lots of poor decisions that were made during that whole 10, 11, 12 year period. Um, by the European Tour board, there there will be some things that we know we're not going to know, and there will be some things that we know we will not be hundred percent accurate on. But given everything that gets published, everything that we've read in terms of the reports, the financials, the PGA Tour documents, it's all fairly kind of nailed on accurate. Um, and the the player committee as part of the DP World Tour, so you know, they probably didn't do a good enough job. The diligence obviously clearly wasn't good enough. And they were far too much in bed as a casual kind of relationship with the PGA Tour. And I think Keith Pelly was kind of mastered by Jay Monaghan um, on that basis. Um, so that's the, the strategic alliance. It wasn't really a strategic alliance. It was a one-way relationship and a motive and a vehicle for the PGA Tour to buy out the European Tour. But that hasn't happened because of a competitor um and that covers the first topic of this episode um of the drop zone um, and we'll move on to the next topic so let's talk mergers let's talk frameworks let's talk commercials and let's talk golf business and obviously so first part of the topic around the strategic alliance and this is where this whole kind of story and the whole aspect of live golf and the impact it would have so just going back to that first one so it took 13 or oh, took 11 years 11 years for the pga tour to get 15 percent of european tour productions as part of the strategic strategic alliance 15 or 11 years to get 15 percent and this just goes to show the state of professional golf and how it's run in terms of the lack of innovation the lack of change now when you look at cricket when you look at football with regards to not over the years premier league champions league um there, there are ways to innovate you know a product um via the governing bodies that run them um now golf has not done that golf has not changed principally for 60 years when the pga tour came into fruition by with jack and arnie it hasn't changed the majors haven't changed the structure the tours haven't changed yes there are tournaments but there's no there's been no innovation at all in that so this is where the piff and live golf and performance 54 and other investors in live saw an opportunity now, it's taken them less than 12 months from one tournament, from the first tournament to where they are now, and it's taken them less than 18 months as an organization to change the face of golf. Now, bearing in mind that I just said there's been no change in 60 years, and for 
11 of those years, the PGA Tour were trying to buy the European Tour golf, and they only ended up with 50% of a production arm of, of, of European Tour business. That is actually quite staggering, that it's got to a point where a competitor, yes, with very deep pockets, could actually fundamentally change the whole face and world of golf. Um, because the PGA Tour then got themselves into a very difficult position with an unsustainable model, um, up in the designated events, dipping into their cash reserves, losing sponsorship, dwindling viewer numbers, um, aging viewership um, over the course of time, no Tiger Woods to prop them up. Um, yes, they have some really great great players like Rory, um, but it was just, again, it was a bit like the European Tour, from the 2005 onwards, when they really, really struggled to keep hold of a great product and their best players. So you just kind of have to just think about that. And that's really important in terms of framework and merger in that it's only taken 18 months, 12 months as an actual tour for Live and the PIF to totally change the face of golf. So when the framework agreement came out, it was obviously huge news. Nobody had expected it. I think there were probably plans that it was going to happen at some point, um, but not this year, definitely. Maybe at some point next year, and then there would be a period of, of consolidation. But the European Tour needed it, absolutely, because the, the Strategic Alliance dead. Um, they needed the money. So whatever they were going to do, they would follow the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour also clearly needed the, the money their model would, would slowly kind of dry out and, and die down and they'd probably have massive restructuring. Um, they might have, may, might have, uh, may have had to switch to a for-profit company um, and that would obviously have big impacts in terms of the charities but also the cash reserves for that. So, and the fact that they were obviously looking to pay you know, 200 million to the, to the European tour um, it was just a very big, unsustainable model. The litigation, obviously, was another big thing. Um, but I, I, I will say, I think they created quite a bit of that. Um, yes, to protect their model. But again, I just think that was really poor assurance and risk management. They could have handled that in a different way. That would have stopped and the litigation process. Um, they could have reached out at a much earlier stage. Um, they, they could have had some of that agreement. Um, and that would have obviously saved them from spending, you know, potentially whatever is 50 to 100 million or whatever the costs are for the legal costs. So, yes, there was a lot of hate towards PIF and the players for taking the money. But you've got to understand here, yeah, this is a startup organization who have tried for several years to work with the existing tours. Um, they were shut down. They can see value as a product because that's what the PIF does. They have a plan, a 10-year roadmap. They're willing to put in you know, billions of, of dollars into that plan, not expect a return for four or five years. That's what happens in the investment world. That's how these things work. Um, you know, you've only got to look at Twitter and Facebook. You know, when they started, they made no money for, for, for many years before they started to turn a profit. And then when you do start, when you reach that tipping point, you've then got a very, very great product. Now, 
Liv still has to prove that, but I think they've made huge strides, as I said. Within 18 months, they've changed the whole face of golf. Um, so the bit that we don't see behind the scenes is obviously having a huge impact. There's obviously a lot of conversation going on with sponsors, with businesses, with manufacturers, and we've started to see that play out. The deals that they've done with golf courses now, golf courses who are paying them to have the events, We've seen the impact of that this year with Adelaide. The American attendances are, are, are increasing at every tournament. Um, I think with DC being their biggest one. Um, you look at, obviously, London, which is happening now. So I was watching that bit of that earlier. But London, you know, big crowds there, at fifty to 55,000 expected in total. 45 ground passes and you know, 10,000 corporates. That's, that's, you when you're in that position and you start to see that that makes it a very attractive product so they had to spend big to make an impact and they've now set the foundation for the future now one of the key guys within that was michael klein as i mentioned with regards to the advisor to the piff to yazira and to mbs now jimmy dunn in his interview when the framework agreement was published and everybody was like wow you know jimmy dunn to that kind of almost infamous uh, interview when he was on about talking if I saw a terrorist I killed them myself but within that he actually let slip of Michael Klein and he said it was Michael Klein that got the job done so the framework agreement is very well written in that you have to read it very carefully and take it as a whole document not as just blank one-line statements because it talks about team golf and that team golf will be a part of the new, the new company it talks about the board but it also talks about the administration aspects that the tours will actually run themselves and that there will be board members for each of the tours so you have to read as a whole document and, and that to me suggests that these entities will still operate on an individual basis but there will be some kind of integrated schedule and i'll talk about some of what we think that schedule might be from things we've we've heard also just through you know our general kind of opinion um so and everything that i've said around the piff and everything that they've done in terms of their modeling and their plan and changing golf within 18 months there is absolutely no way in terms of an investor in in, in an organization is going to pull that product it doesn't matter if the board the board of the new company have seats on that board because when you look at the document as well it talks about fair value so fair value in terms of we will review and analyze it in fair value so if you look at the european tour the european tour it probably has some kind of net worth of around anywhere between 200 million to half to half a billion and that's probably half a billion has probably been very generous you know, they've got some cash in the bank and they've they've got a fairly decent product yes they've got the wider cup and that will have quite a bit of value but if you were to rock in just to buy that now you wouldn't be paying more than half a billion for it because of the debt that they have with img and obviously they've got some debt with the pga tour so then you look at the pga tour and you strip out the tournament aspect so where all the money comes in from the tournaments and the, and, and the money that gets donated to the charities. So all of that will be ring-fenced. 
But then you look at the business side of that. So you look at the media rights, you're looking at sponsors, you're looking at the golf courses that they own and the assets that they have. Now, if you were to kind of wrap all of that up, it might be somewhere between maybe 1.5 to 2 billion, maybe 2.5 billion pounds. I don't know how much the golf courses are worth, but you'd be looking at, at that kind of number. Most of the revenue generation comes from the media aspect. So there's quite a bit of value there for us. If you were to buy that now, it would probably be worth around that much money. And then all the all of the cash reserves and all of the, the money that's there for the charities is ring-fenced. Now, if you look then at Live Golf, they had three billion pound budget, is what we, we understand and what was in their plans. They've spent 1.5 billion already. Some of that is obviously good to get the tour off the ground, you know, with regards to running the tournaments, prize money, and the contracts that they've had with the players. Now, that still means they've got 1.5 billion in cash. That obviously is there. So, as an asset, the, the amount of money they have in the bank is almost the equivalent of what the PGA Tour is worth. There might be a bit more money in terms of that. Now, if you throw Live Golf into that and the, the, the dynamics of Live Golf and where they've got to in, in 18 months and what's happening and the trajectory that they're on, to give a fair value assessment in terms of potential future worth, you would have to say at this moment in time that Live Golf arguably in four or five years time could be way more attractive as a proposition and, and as an asset than the pga tour now that obviously has to have some things happen and i think if anything happens between now and the end of the year with regards to a franchise owner coming in or a major sponsor coming in then i think that the world changes because you also have to look here at the blockers which have been in place for live golf the blockers with regards to the media rights in America, the blockers with regards to sponsors, the blockers with regards to manufacturers, and all the other elements, all the kind of support services that's and contracts the PGA Tour had, they were all of those contracts were kind of blocked away and locked. So very anti anti-competitive. Even when you go and look at the PGA Tour docs, it's incredibly anti-competitive um, the conflict of interest is all over the place and in any normal board or governance conflict of interest is one of the biggest drivers to ensure that there's some impartiality on a board and it's, it's, it's the same it's the same in government you know, if you're in government you have to declare your conflicts of interests it's exactly the same in any board uh, all the boards that i've sat in one of the first lines of the agendas when you start that board meeting is declaring any conflicts of interest whether it's talking about contracts where it's talking about just the, the company itself you sign up for those as an executive board member so the PIF are in a very strong position here in terms of a fair value aspect yes where the biggest determining factor will be for the PGA Tour would be the strength of their players the strength of their membership that's where their asset is stronger and the value that holds against live where it currently is that's not to say though that lives asset in terms of its members and its players is actually growing in strength you've only got to see the major results from this year um so 
when you put all of that together and you set up the new company and you have the board and the PGA Tour will have a controlling interest in terms of the board, that that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, you know, their asset value in it as where it currently stands is probably a little bit bigger than Live Golf. Um, but as I said, Live have got cash in the bank and they've got a huge investor who's got more cash in the bank that can easily just say, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll meet your valuation and here's the investment. Um, you know, so it's it's not just obviously Live Golf. I think Golf Saudi might be part of that and there'll be other elements that, that the PIF have that will come into that. So that's where the fair value treatment will be. Now, yes, PGA Tour will have controlling interest, but in any business where you have shareholders or investors, so on a public limited company, shareholders can vote and they can vote to get people out of a board. Um, it happens. Um, they can sell their investment. Um, they can pull out of investment, which obviously means there can be a run on a company. We've seen it before with share prices going like this. And it's the same on, with, with companies who have got shareholders or big investors. Those guys have seats on the board. They might not have a controlling vote. In some cases, they do. In some cases, they don't. But the matter of the fact is, if a major if a major majority shareholder in terms of finance, not voting rights, but in terms of finance, does not get their way or they don't agree with an approach commercially, they will tell you. And they will basically coup the board. I've seen it several times. I've been directly involved in an organization exactly like that, where the major shareholder um, basically ousted the board and there was a takeover internally. Um, and those things will happen. And that's because they didn't agree with the approach. They didn't agree with where the company was heading. Um, and they just, they just pulled the plug and basically just got shot of chief executive, finance director, operations director, just gone, um, all in the space of six months. Um, and you know, we were talking a multi-hundred million pound organization. Um, so, th so these things do happen. So when in the framework agreement it says that, yes, the PIF has the controlling investment amounts, they will set a framework in place. They will have a delegation of authority in place. They will have a terms of reference in place that will outline who can do what and how much money you can spend. But that will be to do with the the operational running of the tours. So yes, they will have a remit to be able to do certain things in terms of maybe a new tournament or to have some initiatives, and they will do that. But anything that will fundamentally change the organizational structure of NUCO and that requires investment, new investment, or to end investments or to get rid of, to fundamentally change the structure. So that would mean getting rid of Live Golf or closing down the DP World Tour. It simply will not happen in the board because the veto power will come from where the money sits. And that's how these things work. So the notion that Live Golf will be gone next year is I, I don't buy it for one second. And you can see that from the actions in the last couple of weeks with regards to the contracts that they've signed with golf courses, the contracts that they're getting with sponsors for the teams, just how positive they've been. When you look at the positivity of the players on Live, 
versus the positivity or the negativity of what happened when the announcement was made from the PGA Tour. That tells you everything you need to know. Um, Jay Monaghan, obviously, whatever's happened to him, um, you know, if he is seriously ill, then obviously we wish him all the best. Um, but just his absence um, and just a lack of a statement with regards to that is obviously more concerning. Um, really, and I'd be massively concerned. But the fact that Jimmy Dunn mentioned Michael Klein was the guy that did the deal just says to me that this is all piff leaning and the PGA Tour have actually come in cap in hand. Jimmy Dunn reached out. He said that. So they've made the approach. This is a bit like the European Tour, PGA Tour aspect, where the PGA Tour tried to come in and buy because they saw, because they were they would have been told by Keith, we're struggling for money. It's all there in the books. It's all public information. Um, Jimmy Dunn was the one that reached out because the PGA Tour knew we have to get the A deal done. We have to stop the bleeding. Um, so the notion that Liv will not be there, I don't buy for one second. Um, and the one that's going to lose in this will be the DP World Tour. Now, if the merger doesn't happen, then I can definitely see the PIF buying up the European Tour. Um, and that would leave the PGA Tour in a very, very difficult position um, because the litigation is all stopped. That was part of the agreement, so there's no more litigation. Um, it would be very difficult for the PGA Tour to put a big block on the players because of what they've said to the players. Um, and say, no, stay with us, stay with us, stay with us. And then those guys turning down, you know, huge amounts of money, um, a better lifestyle because of the schedule. Um, and, and that's one of the biggest things that the live golfers say is around the schedule. Um, you know, Cam Smith said um, in London this week, if I could play 14 events a year in four majors, I'm happy. And I wouldn't want to change that. DJ has said the same. Mickelson has said the same. It works for them. And you can see that in the results in the majors. Obviously, OWGR is one of the big blockers in that space, but we'll talk about that in a bit later. But that's that's where we're at. Um, you know, if there is no deal, then the PGA Tour are going to be stuck still with a DOJ investigation. They've got the Larry Clayman case, um, which is obviously still ongoing, where the, the documents were leaked. Um, and I'll talk briefly about that shortly. The PGA Tour will be in a very, very difficult position. Um, they may have to restructure their tour significantly, they would probably have to go to for profit and then that would allow significant investment come in. I think if you look at the TGL, Tiger and Rory um, League, which the PGA does support, they're actually doing pretty good. You know, they've got some big celebrity investors. They've actually got some companies. Now, I think we've invested or have bought into two of the teams. Um, so that looks to be quite a promising enterprise. Why? Because it's innovative. It's taking technology. Um you know, I've, they've stolen the idea in principle from from another business um, who've got that concept and idea in terms of the technology um, actually patented, um, believe it or not, in America. Um, so, but that's innovation and because it is Tiger and it is Rory and it's the top players. Now, you know, why hasn't the PGA Tour done something around changing up the schedule, um, you know, making some events different? Um, putting that innovation and making them more fun, get the viewership in. Um, I don't know, but the PGA Tour have been a fairly difficult position, I think. But they would have to, they would, in no doubt in my mind, would they have to go to become a for-profit for company if the merger doesn't happen? And I think that would actually free them up to do lots of other things. But that's my view and my take 
um, on the, the merger. So next up, PGA Tour documents. Hilarity is what I would so in the UK we had some funny kind of I say old school funny kind of comedies. Um there's like Basil Fawlty or Fawlty Towers. Um and we used to have what, what was called carry on movies back in the day. All kind of slapstick, um silly silly, silly stuff. And the this PGA Tour Docs scenario is is a bit like that. So Larry Clayman, fair dues to him. Um I understand he's in his seventies. He's a bit of a crazy individual, um, but he, but he's a, he's like a dog with a bone, and he's kept plowing on, um, on his attack on the PGA Tour, and that's resulted. And to be fair, he's a, there are some really interesting nuggets in those PGA Tour docs. There's the main document, which is three hundred fifty-seven pages, which is very detailed. So it has that's all the kind of a lot of discovery and evidence items in that. So there's a lot of emails around the OWGR. And the level of conflict of interest in that is an absolute joke. Um, when you read it, it's, it's absolutely frightening that you've got technical committee members um, on the PGA Tour talking about OWGR stuff, what to say, what to write, um, saying very, you know, unprofessional items. Um, the whole element around the PGA Tour, a guy called Michael Brody, who created the strokes gained kind of algorithm, which is used. Um, using that to develop the new ranking system, the stroke scheme ranking system, um, which will come into effect in a couple of years' time. Um, but the disparity between that stroke scheme world ranking versus the existing points-based system is just terrible at the moment. Um, so, that yeah, so the, there's really interesting nuggets around that. Um, there are some there are some really good notes there. So the the Peter Dawson one um, is a response to a, a, a sworn testimony that was written um, back into that court case. It's very interesting indeed because um, it talks about Liv and the application process. So Liv put their application in in June last year, um, and in the response to that, the OWGR technical committee, which is obviously mainly full of PGA Tour boards and a couple of other people um, from the International Golf Federation and the DP World Tour, they talk about a 12 to 18 month process. Now we're now in th we're now almost in 13 months. There was clarification questions around the tour and the process in January, which Liv answered. I think hence then creating the which they were going to do anyway, but creating the relegation and the Q school. In, in into into the league so and when we come back to the framework agreement one of the key sections in the framework agreement and this is why again i can't see live going away clearly states that there will be a fair a fair test and it's interesting they put that in the framework agreement for the pj tour and the dp world tour given the power that they have in terms of the technical committee which also has the four majors involved to help live golf get owgr now we're on a countdown now for that process um so between now i would say probably by the end of september we probably should know once i think once the open is done 
I think you will see an announcement fairly shortly after that. They might wait to the end of the Tour Championship. They possibly might wait to after the road to Dubai has done. But between now and then, OWGR will make an announcement. And I think the likelihood is that they will grant Live Golf world ranking points. Um, so that was some really interesting nuggets in terms of the the PGA Tour docs. Um, there are some other really good bits in there around the Live Golf aspect, the, sorry, the Strategic Alliance bit and the plans that they had back in 2017-2018 to actually buy the European Tour, which obviously we talked about earlier, um, and that was a, a kind of a long, drawn-out process. Um, they had clear obligations that, but they, some other nuggets in there was around schedule, and I'll come on to that later. How how Live Golf, the DP DP World Tour, and the PGA Tour could actually all coexist, because um, there are some big aspects and headlines in those documents around the bio plan and the schedule adjustments. Um, and I don't think they will go away as part of the merger. I think they will still be there for, for the PGA Tour as part of operationally running. Um, the the two tours and then obviously with Live Golf slotted in on that as well. So these are some really good notes and kudos to you know at De Desert Duffer and LG um, on Twitter for following that case. He's a legal guy himself, um, but he did a great job in actually doing that and testing and um, giving mainstream golf media um, a bit of a slap in the face actually with regards to some of those documents as well. But other nuggets in there. Um, I guess some of the key ones was around, you know, how how much communication is shared between and has been shared with DP World Tour around tournaments, around schedules, around comms, even when there isn't that link between the two, apart from Jay on the board and the 15% in the production arm, in terms of running the tours and comms and how joined up they are in terms of their approach because of the threat of the PGL and then obviously subsequently Piff Piff and the Live and Live Golf. Um but the amount of conflict of interest through all of that and the impacts that that had as well on, on the OWGR um is, is is absolutely telling. Uh and it just goes to show as well that it is amazing with all of that in the way as blockers with all of the PGA Tour sponsors and the media aspects being blocked from doing anything with, with Live Golf um, and how biased media, right, who are obviously being paid for um, and generate a lot of their revenue from the PGA Tour, um, how amazing a job Live Golf have done with all of that headwind. Now, that all of that is gone now with regards to the framework agreement, even if there is no agreement moving forward. All of that headwind is gone. The doors open up um, across the whole patch, and I think we'll probably see some significant announcements from Live Golf um, during this year, ready for next year, and their schedule and sponsors and potential franchise owners. Um, so, yeah, there's some really good nuggets in there. Obviously, they were incorrectly sealed, apparently, so they should not have been made public. Um, but they were public a couple of days ago when I had a really good read through that before doing this podcast um so definitely worth a read if you can still get your hands on them there's some really good nuggets in there one of the biggest ones and one of the ones which was quite funny was at the travelers championship championship last year 
and Jay kind of instructing Tiger what to say. So you clearly know that they've obviously sent out memos because, again, in the PGA Tour docs, they were also telling board members what to say, both on the PGA Tour and the European Tour. So it's all scripted. And I think when you look at Keith Pelley's interviews following the arbitration ruling and the way that the interviews were structured, it's clearly preset questions, pre-recorded, and then Keith giving his answer. His answers are obviously all scripted, um, which is quite telling, because at the same time, I think he'd done a, an interview with uh, Michael McEwen on Bunkered, and that wasn't scripted. Although he probably would have been aware of the questions, his answers were far from coherent, far from making any sense, um, which is very different to the, the pre-scripted interviews that he gave. So there's just a lot of comedic aspects around that. And obviously, one of the biggest ones was obviously to say, getting Tiger to say this, this, and this, and blow smoke up Jane Monahan's um, arse. Um, and then, obviously, Tiger basically, I think, ending that two- or three-month silence just by saying, I've never seen this at all, ever. Um, so that puts Jay... Puts Jane very precarious, but I, I don't, I don't think Jane Monaghan will be CEO um, of PGA Tour, or commissioner or CEO of the Newco, and I, I think we're already aware that Keith Pelly is actually moving on anyway um, after the BMW PGA, or he might hang on to the end of the season. Um, but the rumours are that Keith is going to be replaced as well. So there's some interesting nuggets in the in the PGA Tour docs, and, and well worth a read um, if you've got the time or the inclination to do so. So let's talk official world golf rankings, or that's what they used to be. Um, obviously, they've been around for an eternity, created by a management company um, to add value to their players. Um, and, you know, if they've been around forever. They've had some form of sponsorship as well, so that they were creating quite a bit of revenue. Um, they then obviously folded into a formal committee um, and have been for some time. And they've had multiple changes in their 38-year history. They've changed. There's been 36 additions in terms of tours or tournaments or, and amendments to the official World Golf Rankings. Now, let's not forget one thing here. It is purely a mathematical algorithm. That's it. They've overcomplicated it over the course of time. Um, it used to be based on... You know, all kinds of different kind of methods historically and it's got to a point in the last probably since tiger's era where it was kind of much more effective but they went away and they thought that there was a bit too much bias in the ranking system um the way that the points are allocated for various tours around strength of field um and that's the problem here is when you make it arbitrary that you're never really going to get a true reflection there's always going to be a bit of bias somewhere and they allegedly went out to several universities, rather than one in the UK, four in the States, to independently review what they thought. And they apparently never seen any output and they haven't presented any of this output. It all came in saying that there was a bit of a bias towards the PGA Tour, um, which is quite ironic because the new system that they've put in has a massive amount of bias towards the PGA Tour. They removed, and this was all because of, again, going back to the PGA Tour docs, and you can see it in there, and they talk about the strokes gained index, and they wanted to use that, and they wanted to pitch it to the OWGR technical committee, 
when most of the members or a certain amount of members on my technical committee are PGA Tour members. Um, the level of conflict of interest in that is just unbelievable on several factors. OWR, OWGR are headquartered in DP World Tours headquarters in, in Wentworth in Surrey. So they, they share the same building. That's number one. We're talking about Chinese walls and things here. To be an independent organization, you can't do that. They get paid by the various major organizations. Um, so Augusta, PGA of America, and the US PGA, and European Tour Golf. So again, and PGA pays into that. And then the PGA Tour, that is. And then you've got, obviously, various other tours also commit. I think the International Golf Federation also pay a license fee. So they, they don't make a huge amount of money. They basically have enough money just to be, be able to run the technical aspect of that and to pay, obviously, the board members, obviously, just some expenses and fees. And that's how that works. Um, but again, there's conflict of interest there in that it's not an independent organization. Because you've got an organization paying money for the license fee to run a system, and yet they sit on that same board. Now, that doesn't seem fair. Um, and the International Golf Federation represents all the other tours, so they only get one vote compared to the PGA Tour, European Tour, and the majors. So there's not disparity. There's not fairness. It's not an open system. So when a significant change like this happens, and you strip away the adjusted points for the lesser tours um, to give them more of a chance to, if they perform very well on their tour, they have much more of a realistic opportunity to find a pathway into the PGA Tour or the European Tour or the majors um, and in the world rankings. Now, all of that has gone. Um, and it's just a really bad look. And obviously with the impact on the live golf plays, which I can I fully understand, um, but with the fact that it's just purely a mathematical equation, the fact that it takes 18 months to review that as a process, when it clearly states on their websites, we will rank all professional golfers. Um, yes, if they turned on and said six months, I would fully understand that, just to evaluate the ecosystem. Um, Bearing in mind that they're a small organization and the technical committee members have got a huge conflict of interest because if the, the, the decision they would make to allow Live Golf to get more ranking points would impact their products. And that's been made clear because the OWGR is a very important KPI, so Key Performance Indicator, for the PGA Tour with their media partners the o the owgr is a big indicator in that and that's proven in the documents and it's obviously been proved true by by phil um in some of these things so when you factor all of that in the conflict of interest to say oh it's going to take us 12 to 18 months to be able to verify it's, it's rubbish it's a simple mathematical equ equation just come up you've given every other tour arb arbitrary points historically you know, adjusted those points. Just, just give, just use the same center field mechanism. Yes, there's no cut, but just, in, in, just say we will give points to the top twenty-four players. They've did that historically. It's been there ever in the day. They've made thirty-six amendments in thirty-eight years. Um, the reason why that didn't happen 
It was nothing to do with criteria because they've chopped and changed, as I said, 36 times in 38 years. There's been some addition or amendment to the world rankings. Um, it's purely because of power and control to stop the live golf players because it, if they did, they would, they knew that it would devalue their product. And that's where the conflict of interest comes in. That's where the anti-competitive anti nature of that comes in. Now, thankfully, the majors have not done that, but we have started to see this year with regards to the US Open, the PGA and the Open, players on live who ordinarily, if they were given ranking points six months in, would already have qualified for those majors. Now, hopefully, as I mentioned before, they've stated a sworn statement from Peter Dawson that within 12 to 18 months from the application, they would give a yes or no answer. Now, that answer is 100% going to be yes because of the framework agreement and what's in place. So between now and, as I said before, it could be between now and November time, a decision will be made to give live world ranking points. Um, I would imagine it would probably happen, happen sooner rather than later. Um, now, the ranking points themselves, it's just very, very poor. They're not accurate. I know they're transitioning to the new strokes gained world ranking, um, but even that I think is flawed. It's got a heavy bias towards the PGA Tour um, because that's where it was developed and, and it's, it's more widely used. Um, there is an organization, a fairly new organization called the Universal Golf Rankings, who do have a pure, non tour leaning, no bias approach. It's strictly strokes gained. You have it's it's weighted to recency in twelve months. So the world rank golf rankings have a very have a massive leaning towards recency, but then they also have, they also extend some of the wider aspects over a two year period. So there is a bit of consistency in there, provided that you play the amount of events, and then they have a divisor as a minimum number of events. So if you're playing very good golf in, in recent times and you win a couple of tournaments, you're guaranteed to almost be in the top 20 in the world on the world golf rankings, but you might not do anything for six months. But then when you Billy Horschel is a very clear example of this. Billy Horschel was in the top 20, He's played absolutely terrible golf for a long period of time. And he's still in, so I think he's still inside the top 40. That's where the recency bias um, is not really working in the system. And then the long-term two-year view also doesn't work. So the Universal Golf Rankings has got a really open system. You have to play 20 events as a minimum to get a strokes gained index. And because it's all player versus player, they can track every player in a tournament and see the scoring path and it's just pure strokes game so if you shoot 69 it's 69 there's no arbitrary points um and it's a really really good system and and if i was the, the guys who run tugr i would be uh, i'd be knocking down the doors of the majors saying look this is a true reflective system um there's no order of merit influence or required from an order of merit standpoint here is your top 50 Use the top 50 because you're going to get the top 50 players who score the best consistent, consistently over a 12-month period. And given the majors are there every year, that's the fair and it's a 12-month ruling period. That's by far the best solution to work. Yes, you can have some, obviously, keep the open qualifying elements for the rest of the 
to places, but at least you've got a top 50 or top, top 60, which is accurate, and they've proven to be more accurate than the World Golf Rankings, the, the Sports Illustrated aspect, and Data Golf. Um, they've proved that through the majors this year. And this organization's only been running since, I think, November last year. They set this up as an alternative ranking system. Um, so if I was those guys, I'd be reaching out to the majors um, as an approach. Um, get your license fee paid um, and be totally independent. Um, and there's no need then to kind of have all this conflict of interest um, in terms of world rankings. But, you know, that's the system I think has the best value in terms of world golf rankings. What next? Well, obviously, framework agreement will happen. There's an interesting DOJ um, or a Senate um, meeting, I think, next week, um, where a couple of reps from PGA Tour, there's a rep from Live, Live Golf, who are going to attend. Um, there'll be no Monaghan, no Norman, no, no Yazir. I don't think Keith Pelly's going. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens what comes from that. I think uh, Jimmy Dunn and Ed um, Hurley here representing PGA. Um, and I think the CO, COO of Live Golf is going to represent. So it'll be interesting to see what happens from that. Um, I think the framework agreement more than likely will get done. Um, but there will be a lot of negotiation, I think particularly from the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour on that cases, on that basis. Um, as I said, if it doesn't happen, then I can see the DP World Tour being immediately snapped up by by the PIF, um, and the PGA Tour will become a not-for-profit organization, uh, or become a for-profit organization, but obviously keeping the not-for-profit arm for the charity charitable element. Um, I can see, as mentioned before, live having a bright future. I can see the PGA Tour having a fairly good future. Um, and I can see the DP World Tour it's still existing, um, w w which is a key element. There's obviously a lot of, of information to get through, um, but that's how I see that happening. It, it, it'll be, if, if if it does go ahead, they will all coexist, um, but with a reduced schedules. Um, if it doesn't go ahead, then the European Tour will, will just, the DP World Tour will fold into into Pivot to Live Golf. And I think that'll be really good for them because if that does happen, they're going to attract some of obviously the European stalwarts back into the fold. It'll be good for, for Ryder Cup in terms of captaincies and vice captains. Um, it'll be good for some of the younger players like Chikara and Puge um, be having opportunities to be able to qualify for the Ryder Cup because um, I think they're two serious talents, but particularly um, Puge. Um, then obviously, but you also have the bright sparks of, you know, Cam Smith, Dustin Johnson, um, you know, lefty to a degree, Bryson DeChambeau, um, Taylor Gooch, Bubba Watson, Varna, all those guys having the opportunity to play one or two events on the European Tour, which is just going to increase, you know, the, the, the profile of the European Tour. And it needs that because, as I said, it, for the last 10 years or so, it, it it's lost that appeal. Um, now, one of the key things as well is that if... With or without the merger, if there's a a basis of not being one of the key things here would be the ability potentially to move between tours. Now, if 
the membership rules, and it does say this in the framework agreement, are still in place, and disciplinary action can still be had with regards to players on those tours. That would be an interesting dynamic to see how that works. Now, all players will need to do would be to resign their membership. Um, that would be risky to do that. Um, obviously, the live golfers, most of them have done that. Not all of them, but most of them have. It would be if you resign your membership, then the PGA Tour cannot stop players from signing with Live Golf. So I think that would be an interesting dynamic with or without the framework in terms of how that works and how that gels. Um, so, yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of stones to be kind of overturned. There's a lot of grounds to be made and there's a lot of decisions to be made. Um, but that'll be an interesting watch over the next few weeks with regards to how the OWGR will come in. Obviously, the leaked documents have probably been poured over. Um, changes at CEO and commissioner. Um, there's a lot to happen, I think, between now and the end of the two seasons for the PGA Tour and the and DP World Tour. Um, but as I said before, Michael Klein is a, is a PIF guy. And I think they will come out the best out of all of this, in all honesty. Um, I think they will get more out of this than the PGA Tour and the European Tour will when the deal goes ahead. So, the last topic of the episode one of the, the Drop Zone, brought to you by the Penalty Drop Team, a.k.a. me for now. Um, future schedule. So, really looking into this and analysing some of the stuff in the PGA Tour docs around the PJ Tour's original plan to buy the DP World Tour and not kind of go down the alternate plan, which was to invest um, in the production or more, some portion of the European Tour. So very interesting aspects around what a tour schedule might look like. Now, one of the key pointers that I took away from that was the, the schedule for to be run from the European Tour to kind of really re reschedule in entirety. So they talk about obviously, um, obviously the co-sanctioned events, but they also talk about the big restructuring of the European Tour and for their season to run from December, January, and end in August. So there would be a bit of an off-season, and that, and that would so that could create a pathway of a tier tier two type of level on the European Tour, and that kind of mirrors what they've obviously done with regards to the designated events on the PGA Tour. So the PGA Tour season now runs predominantly from January. So, so the FedEx side to the end of August, the Tour Championship. It's a very structured approach. And then they have off-season events where players can actually get, are able to qualify to get into those designated events. And then they talk through the cycle that they're introducing for next year. So that's moved on a little bit from the original plans. But when you, when you kind of tee that up together with regards to the DP World Tour and you've got the Rolex series, that'll really kind of shorten the events and there might be ways in for to maybe further co-sanction some of those events to allow the PGA. So what that will do is it'll allow some of those maybe potentially the Rolex series events to become designated events, the BMW championship become a designated event, possibly the Scottish Open or the Irish Open to become designated events. So they will form part of that designated event structure. What that does do, it allows the PGA the European Tour players based on the PGA Tour to use those co-sanctioned events as designated events or co-sanctioned events 
to count towards their European Tour membership. So European Tour players that play on the PGA Tour always have a busier schedule because they have to play four events outside of the majors, four European Tour sanctioned events to be able to retain their membership card. So, you know, if that structure expands, so say they increase the designated events to 18 designated events, but you only have to play, say, 12 of them. So you've got 12 you have to play on the PGA Tour. You've got three additional events. That's 15. And then your four majors. That gives you 19 events. That's not a bad number. It's not too dissimilar to live guys who are playing the majors, 18 events. Likewise, then, on top of that, for the European Tour players, you've got to chuck on another four events for them to be able to retain their membership and etc. and qualify for the Ryder Cup. So they've got to play a minimum of 23 events if you're going to do it on that basis. So you could restructure those schedules and to a, to a lesser amount. And then that would mean that they'd have a bit more of an off-season. Potentially they could maybe do those three additional events in, in, in at the beginning of the season. And that would free them up to have a, real, a really good schedule throughout the year. Yes, there might obviously be some sponsor-related um, obligations to pay certain events, but you would be able to kind of have a much stronger core structure between the two tools and how that, stru how that structure works. So it benefits the players from Europe that obviously the PJ want to retain because they want to have you know the 10 best players every year come through. How that's going to work now, I don't know, because that's not part of the strengthened strategic alliance. Um, so they're... There are ways that you can make that work by shortening the, the, the two seasons. I think one of the downfalls of the DP World Tour schedule is that it goes too far. They should really have maybe stuck with the, the South African element um, of the Sunshine Tour and that particular swing, which happens very early on in the season. Yes, then you've got the Middle East swing around Dubai and, and obviously other areas of, uh, areas of the UAE. And then obviously you've got kind of the Europe element but then when you go to kind of place like North, North Africa and a couple of other events in Asia and further afield, I just think that was part of poor, poor planning. Um, and they could restructure those events in, in a much, much better way to make them more beneficial for their players as a whole. Um, have less of events, which I think is obviously going to happen. Now, for Live Golf, kind of coming into that schedule... If you've got the DP World Tour playing less events, but then within that you've got some key co-sanctioned and some Rolex events, and then you've got the PGA Tour. So the Live Golf actually fits into the PGA Tour schedule really well now, but Live would be, from a new co-perspective, would be the tour that goes globally. So if you have some conflict on, say, the, the lesser weeks or off weeks, you could easily reschedule some of those events. Yes, there might be some overlapping between the European Tour and the PGA or the European Tour and Live or Live and the PGA. But if they're in different parts of the world, the timing element, so you could actually have you know, Live Golf in the morning, you could have European Golf in the afternoon, and this would be from a, say a, a UK perspective, you could have obviously the European Golf in the morning, you could have Live Golf in the afternoon based on wherever they're playing, and then you've got the PGA Tour for us in the evening. On those kind of conflated weeks or those busier weeks, you could really sort out the scheduling. Um, 
you know, if you look at the number of weeks between January and August, chucking the majors, and then you've got players playing on different tours, and then you've got, you could easily have a cadence in those, you know, eight, nine months. Um, you know, you're looking at eight months is, is 32 weeks. 14 by 14 by 14 is, you know, 42 weeks. So you've only got, you know, eight or nine weeks there where you might have some dual running all that. But obviously, if you extend it to the DP World for December, then obviously that's an additional four weeks for them. Um, so you're going to have a very small handful of weeks where there would be some crossover. But as I said, just because of time zones, that could actually work. And it would make it very attractive from a, me a media standpoint where you can have all of this golf. Now, one theory that I did have, just away from schedule for now, was that what if the PIF, the PJ, the new co, create their own production and media company? The amount of revenue that they could generate through advertising directly into themselves and to be able to control the production would be absolutely huge and colossal. And, um, and that could be one of the biggest swingers for the NUCO in terms of profitability, to be able to control that element and be able to sell that product to TV stations, um, but to retain all of that and have all of the sponsorship income to come into the organization, not to the TV channels um, from the media side, is actually pretty extensive. And the reason why I say that is because if if the if the say the, the seasons run for DP World start in December, PJ in January, and say you've got live in, in, in January as well, and then you run through to kind of August, September time, you've then potentially got September and October, maybe the beginning of November, you've got an eight or nine week period where you could have a Champions League type of playoff process. So once FedEx is done, once the Road to Dubai is done, and once the Live Golf season is finished, you could have, say, the, t the top 30 from the Tour Championship from the PGA Tour. You can have, say, the top 15 from the Road to Dubai rankings, obviously already exempt from the guys on, on, on the DP on the Tour Championship side. So that gives you 30, 45 players and then you've got the top 24, say, who retain their cards on Live Golf. So there's a bit of fairness in terms of the numbers and the ratio. So that gives you, what's that? So that's 39, say 69, say it's called 70 players. You know, you might have a couple of invites somewhere for guys who have played fairly well. Um, you've got 70 players who could play four events or five events during that September, October, beginning of November period where there are huge amounts of money up for grabs. Um, you could even do three events. One of them could be like a match match play type of event. So keep match play elements as part of that. You could have two stroke play events and then maybe you could actually have a combined um, as one of the events. You could have lesser numbers but make it even. So you could have, say, 12 players from the European Tour, 12 players from Live Golf and 12 players from the PGA Tour and they play in a stroke, like a live style of event where you, they, they play individually but the scores all accumulate to find the best tour. Now, there's four events there, match play, two stroke play and a team style or a tour based team event um, that could happen during that you know, seven, eight, nine week period that would bring in huge numbers, would be extremely attractive. to. And what you could do is just, and 
you create competition between the tours you add value to the tours um now that would be an amazing product to watch that'd be an amazing system to watch um to uh, culminate in those particular tours and there could be obviously you know benefits for for those players and there could be some incentives and um, with regards to the tours potentially where they can move to earning cards onto whatever tour um there are those options to be able to do that and i think that's where it's very easy to make the schedules fit so the three tours have their own schedule you work out the cadence of the schedule yes you might have some overlapping weeks but it wouldn't be that many across a 14 15 week season um for the for the top tier at the same time you would have secondary tier events on the pga tour you could have a live golf league two for example um that could also work where players can get onto onto live so there's that pathway like the corn ferry tour um obviously from the european tour side the same um and then you've got the off-season events to allow players to to make to earn their way into the designated events earn their way into the bigger events on the european tour and earn their way into the live golf league and then you've got obviously the subsequent tours that can also feed into that kind of globally particularly the asian tour like like live golf um and that could easily work across that period and then you obviously got the majors on top which is great but then you have a bit of a super league or champions league type of approach for golf at the end of the season that would make it an extremely interesting product make it fun it brings the seasons to a crescendo um so you still retain all the legacy and tradition through the usual tour events and um, for the pga tour obviously live golf will be building their own legacy and their own tradition um but then you've also got something new as a product that would make it incredibly exciting at the end of the season where you have these these championship events um you could even have three you have one stroke play one match play one one tour based event so there, there are plenty of options and and in, in innovative ideas to bring all those tours together as part of newco but to make it a really solid and an exciting product it would build up towards that and you know it wouldn't impact the wider cup um in terms of tours it wouldn't impact the president's cup so you've still got the national environments as well um but there's my ideas and these are ideas that we've talked about as a group here at the penalty drop that we could see really working but would be really innovative to have those types of events at the end of each season once they've closed off and then have some kind of champions league of golf process between the three tours um and to build that into the season and then once you've done that for all those top players who were in that level of tier of golf they've got the ability then to have the off season but that it provides huge incentive for players coming through the pathway so the pathway is still there the idea to grow the game is still there if you've then got a proper world ranking system in place um that also helps with regards to getting into the majors which is the traditional element so they will always be above everything else um but there's also a new aspect around a champions league of golf at the end of each season for the for the three tours um and to aspire to be able to get into those um so that creates you know exciting product and value um in terms of a business um in terms of viewership in terms of media in terms of interest and competition between the players and the tours um and that's it i know this has been a fairly lengthy first episode one i hope you watch it hope you share it hope you share some thoughts um and look forward to speaking to you all 
next time on the Drop Zone podcast. <laughs>